Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Matthew chapter 20, I'm going to read from verses 17 through 34. Matthew 20, 17 through 34. Just a brief word while you're turning there. I have discovered something. This shouldn't be true, but it is that with the last years of uh, pandemic and social distancing and the multiple services that we had and the masks we had to wear, that sometimes when people show up to church unmasked and in the same place I am, I look at them and I think, oh, I should know that person's name, but I can't remember that person's name. Have you had that experience or am I the only one in the room? Well, so I'm announcing a special dispensation for the next six months. You don't need to know anybody's name. It's okay. It's okay. You can ask. You can ask. You can offer your name. Just uh, things, we got interrupted. So it's okay. And uh, it's okay to uh, need a refresher. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And on the way, he took the 12 aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know, you, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked, Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes immediately. They received their sight and followed him. Christine Porath and Christine Pearson are both uh, professors. They teach business management and business leadership. And they have given a, a fair amount of time in their academic careers to studying the topic of rudeness in the workplace, incivility on the job. Uh, they have dis, uh, studied how prevalent it is and how much it costs businesses. Their basic answer is that rudeness on the job is rampant and it's on the rise. They did a sur survey of 14,000 professionals in the United States and Canada, professionals across a variety of um, industries, 
and they discovered that uh, incivility is very expensive, and there are a few companies that actually do anything about it to, to address it. Uh, it. The reason it's so expensive is because it lowers morale, it increases stress, it decreases productivity, and it, it multiplies employee turnover, which is always expensive. Do you recognize the name Cisco? Cisco, not the food company, but Cisco, the computer company. It's a global software and hardware company. They did a study a number of years ago about incivility and how much rudeness among their staff cost them. They figured out that it cost them $12 million a year. Uh, Porath and, and Pearson write about a man by the name of Matt who worked for a boss that, that we'll call him Larry. And Larry was a bully. He insulted his employees. He uh, belittles, belittled their efforts. He blamed them for things that were outside of their control. Larry was even rude to customers. Larry and Matt one day went to a, a store uh, to uh, visit with a customer. And Larry looked around at the store and he said, this place is a dump. It was a dump when your dad, talking to the customer, it was a dump when your dad owned it. And it's a dump today. Nothing's changed. This place is a dump. Matt's uh, stress was very high. He worked up the courage to report Larry to HR, and it was one of Larry's multiple reports. Larry talked to HR. He didn't apologize. He said, he admitted, sometimes I use an atomic bomb when a fly swatter will do to take care of problems, but I, I think I'm doing okay. And three weeks later, Larry was named manager of the year at his company. Three days later, Matt had a heart attack. Does anybody work with Larry or someone like Larry? Work for somebody like Larry? T take that, take that what we've talked about so far, and I want you to put it next to this passage uh, that we have just read from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is not talking merely about being polite or merely about rudeness in the passage. It's just the typical tip of the iceberg of, of what Jesus is speaking about. Jesus has in mind here this radically countercultural value system for his followers. I wonder if you notice that Jesus is, is pretty certain that you know what he's talking about. Did you notice that in verse 25? He says to the disciples, you already know this. You know how people use their authority. You know the tendency that certain people have to use the authority that they have to serve themselves and not to serve others. And Jesus says that will not stand. He, like, like Gandalf uh, with his staff against the beast that's chasing the fellowship of the ring, you shall not pass, Jesus says, not so with you. Now, that's not how followers of Jesus use their influence, their authority, their power. Which raises the basic question, I suppose, how do you use yours? How do you use the authority, the power, the influence that you have? Some of you might be thinking to yourself, well, I don't have very much. I really don't have any. Uh, you, you probably have more than you think. And I wonder what you do with the influence that you do have. Remember that we're in the section of Matthew where there are conversations and, and miracle accounts where, where Jesus is, they reflect back on what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, the sermon he delivered. And that sermon in Matthew 18 is about how we as followers of Jesus relate to one another. In Matthew 16, he'd introduce the church, I will build my church. 
Then in Matthew chapter 18, he gives this sermon about how followers of Jesus interact, and he emphasized humility and forgiveness and the pursuit of holiness and courage with one another in pursuing holiness. And he talked about how his people are the ones who care for and protect the little ones. There was a lot of discussion this week in the news media Um, You're wise if you didn't absorb too much of it, but there was a lot of discussion about how the new Texas, the new restrictions on abortion in the state of Texas, um, the Supreme Court did not uh, invalidate them, allowed them to stand, and there was a lot of hand-wringing and angst in the media about this restrictive law. Followers of Jesus are ones who care for the little ones. We care for babies and children. We, we care for the little ones that our society forgets, neglects, wants to throw away. This is a countercultural life that Jesus calls us to. Also, as, as we come into Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're getting closer and closer to the cross, and, and the shadow of the cross is looming over the things that Jesus is teaching his disciples. According to this passage, there are two ways to use power. And there are people who get that and don't get that. There are people who see what Jesus is getting at and people who don't see what he's getting at. The people who don't see are the disciples. And the people who do see, ironically enough, are two blind men at the end of this passage. Two paths, two ways to use power. One of them going up. Path, uh, sorry, one of them going down. It's the path that Jesus has taken and the path that Jesus advocates going down. And then one, the other one, scrambling up, which is the more familiar path, the path that we are most uh, inclined to take. Going down, scrambling up. In this passage, there's a scene about scrambling up in between two scenes about going down. So that's how we're going to walk through this passage. This is so countercultural. We need help in this. We need reminders. So we're going to talk about first going down. Then we'll talk about scrambling up. Then we're going to talk about going down again. Going down part one, verses 17 through 19. Jesus repeats here in these verses some teaching to the disciples that he has brought up before about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. They're traveling, probably with a large crowd because it's Passover season, and and according to the Jewish law, uh, men had to, men in particular, had to gather in Jerusalem for worship during the Passover festival. So the roads would be crowded with pilgrims going to Jerusalem for the Passover, and Jesus and his disciples are on that crowd. Uh, Think of Route 222 tomorrow night. It's going to be crowded. And Jesus is, is traveling to Jerusalem, and he pulls his disciples aside for a huddle to tell them what is going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. Jesus has been talking about this more and more in recent days. In fact, uh, flip with me over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. We'll be back to chapter 20 in a minute, but look at chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew 16, 21 From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There it is once. Look at Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. 
And then we just read it a moment ago, Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, there's some things we should notice about this, this teaching of Jesus. The first thing we should notice is how specific Jesus is about the details of his death. Is there anyone in the room who, who thinks that, that, that they can speak this specifically about the circumstances under which you're going to die? Look, he knows where it's going to happen in Jerusalem. He knows when they're on their way to Jerusalem, so it's, it's going to be soon. He knows who the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Gentiles. He knows how he's going to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then he knows what's going to happen three days later, he will be raised. Jesus is speaking here about a plan that has been from all eternity, formed by the triune God, now brought about in history. He knows it and he can speak about it. It's popular in some circles to say that statements like this were attributed to Jesus after the fact, that he didn't say these things before they happened to him, but after the fact, the disciples went in uh, and put these words in Jesus' mouth. And of course, they say the, the reason that they, they did that is because, well, nobody can, can know those details of their own death like that. I mean, that's just impossible. So, so the words must have been added to Jesus' mouth after the fact. And the reason that that, that really doesn't wash is because the disciples, if, if they put those words in Jesus' mouth, they at the same time made themselves look pretty foolish. In Matthew 16, we didn't read it, but after Jesus spoke those words in Matthew 16, Peter said, no way, no. And then in Matthew 17, we did read it, they were filled with grief. And in a minute, we're gonna look at another passage that says in Matthew 20, they really didn't get it at all. Why, if those first followers of Jesus were trying to get people to follow Jesus like he was, trying to convince them to follow Jesus, why would they make themselves the chief advocates for following Jesus, look so stupid in retrospect, so foolish. Just doesn't make any sense for them to put these words and that terrible reaction back into the story. Jesus spoke these words because he, the God man, was part of the, uh, the Trinity that formed this plan. The other thing that we should notice here is how these events are to function, how they function in the Gospel of Matthew, and how they function in the church. You could say that these, uh, this account functions a bit like our origin story as followers of Jesus. Explains where we came from and what we value, what's important to us. Uh, think about it like, like this. Think about for a minute the American origin story. What do we tell ourselves on the 4th of July or at Memorial Day when uh, uh, we go to a concert or we watch and, and, and uh, the orchestra plays and, and James Earl Jones stands and reads a document about the United States? What, what story do we tell ourselves about our origin? That's a, it's a contested story these days, isn't it? But uh, um, w one of the elements... Uh, the pilgrims came from repressive England and they came across the Atlantic and the dangerous voyage 
and they came because they wanted to be free. They wanted to be free to worship according to their conscience. Or we talk about the immigrants, the millions of immigrants who left Europe and, and left everything behind and came across the Atlantic and, and, and went into New York Harbor and there was the Statue of Liberty and they went through Ellis Island and they came for freedom and for opportunity and for prosperity. Now, um, uh, that story sometimes often ignores the 450,000 people that were brought against their will on slave ships and it doesn't speak well to uh, the indigenous people that were here. We, we sometimes then say, well, we, we fought a, a long and, and bloody civil war to free those slaves, and, and we have been sending our soldiers overseas for a long time to free other people that have been uh, trapped by tyranny. That's our origin story that we tell one another, that, and, and it's an origin story of freedom. We're the freedom people. How about this story? Here, this account is more accurate than the story we tell ourselves as Americans, but this is our origin story as Christians. And what kind of story is it? It's a suffering story. It's a, a, a serving story. Our Lord took to himself human flesh he lived as a carpenter. He spent three years teaching and healing. He was condemned to death. He was handed over to the Romans. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was crucified. And he rose again. It's a suffering story. It's not a story of dominance. It's not a story of control. It's not a story of revenge. It's a story of humility and love and sacrifice. Do you see that? How does that origin story expect, uh, shape how you expect to live in this world and what you expect to experience? Jesus told us persecution would be the norm. We don't expect to be popular. We, we expect to be out of sync with the popular. Um, it doesn't bother us when someone says we're on the wrong side of history. We expect to be with the outcasts. It's funny. We followers of Jesus do better at this when we're on the underside of, of power than, whether, than when we have it. The, the, the times when we followers of Jesus attain some, you look through church history, some uh, level of authority and power, we don't handle it very well. We, we, do, we do seem to do better following Jesus on the underside. Going down. This is part of going down. Jesus is going to expand on this, but it's very clear that the disciples don't see it. Do you? Well, let, let's talk about that. The, let's talk about the scramble up that, that starts in verse 20. No sooner uh, does it appear these words are out of Jesus' mouth that James and John come with their mother. You're not supposed to be impressed by that. Um, you're, um, you're supposed to think, here, James and John have brought their mommy to talk to the teacher, these adult men. Now, uh, maybe they were hoping that Jesus would be impressed, and perhaps part of the reason is if you compare the, the uh, accounts of the crucifixion and the women who witnessed the crucifixion at the end of the Gospels, if you compare the ones that are named there, the women there, it appears that this woman, who's the mother of Zebedee's sons, uh, the mother of James and John, is actually also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
So if you're drawing a family tree, we're almost certain about this. This woman who's coming to Jesus is Jesus' aunt, which means that James and John are cousins of Jesus. Okay. It's almost like they live in Manor Township. Everybody's related. So anyway, anyway, so they're coming for some family connections here and with a request. What do you want? Verse 21. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and, uh, at right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, we have to give them some credit. The credit she deserves is they believe the kingdom is coming. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Maybe they think the kingdom is coming now. Give her some credit. Give James and John some credit. And Jesus had said, we read this a couple weeks ago, that in the age to come, uh, the disciples will be on 12 thrones judging the people of Israel. So Jesus in the center throne, six on each side. Who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be on the left? <laughs> James and John, right? I mean, somebody's got to sit there. Might as well be James and John. Problems. Problem, though, Jesus says, lady, you have no idea what you're talking about. Actually, he's more polite than that. He says, you don't know what you're asking. They forgot about the suffering. He had just spoken about this. He'd just spoken about his own suffering. They forgot about the cup. In the Old Testament, drinking a cup is an image for suffering, often an image for suffering uh, 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 um, as a result of the wrath of God. Remember in, in Gethsemane, Jesus is going to pray, take this cup from me. And he's talking about experiencing the wrath of God. They forgot about the cup. In about a week's time, there are going to be two men, one at Jesus' right and one at Jesus' left. There's going to be two men there on his right and left, and all of the gospel writers speak about them, but it's not going to be James and John. There's going to be two criminals, two crucified criminals, one on his right and one on his left. That is not at all what James and John are thinking about. It's not at all what they're after. They forgot the origin story. Can you drink the cup? Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. If they'd thought about it for just a moment, just a minute if they thought about it, they wouldn't have been so confident. Jesus says, yeah, you will suffer. James is going to be martyred in Acts chapter 12. John's going to be exiled to Patmos. He says, those places, though, are, are not mine to give. How interesting, he said. Apparently, they're for somebody. Is there anybody in the room who wants to volunteer? Huh. They're for those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Who in the world is worthy to sit in those seats? God knows. It's interesting. We've already talked about Jesus' uh, deity, that he knows what's going to happen to him. Um, he knows how he's going to die in all those circumstances. Here's a passage that talks about his submission. This passage talks about his submission to his father and his deity, but both of those things in this, this passage. They, they forgot about the cup. The 10, verse 24 says, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant. I would like to think it'd be nice. It'd be nice if they were indignant for Jesus' sake, as if to say to James and John, 
guys, were you not listening at all? He just talked about the cross and he's going to die. And you're asking about glory. I mean, come on. Weren't you paying attention at all? That's, you'd, you'd like to think that they were indignant for Jesus' sake. Actually, they're indignant for their own sake. We want those seats. You brought your mother. You tried to play that card. You played the mother card on Jesus. And we didn't get a chance to get our mothers here before you got in. They want those seats. You, you wonder, so Jesus had said to Peter, he's going to have a special role to play. Are they trying to box out Peter? And Jesus calls him in, another huddle. It's time for another huddle, boys. Come on, come on in. Scrambling up is what everyone else does. You know that. You know that that's what everyone else does. He says, verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Uh, he's not against the exercise of authority. He's against the misuse of authority. They're, they're misusing their authority. You know, you know that. Our world is, because of Christianity, different than the Roman world, but we still have experience with misused authority. I'm, Mike, I'm going to skip the next slide and go on to the Garrett Fagan slide. Can you find that? The, the, uh, there you go. Garrett Fagan is a uh, professor, uh, was a professor at Penn State University, and he was an expert in the Roman culture. Look what he says about the culture in which uh, that Jesus is talking about here, these Gentiles. Ideas of universal human dignity were almost all but non-existent, and large swaths of the population were seen as inherently worthless. Some of the discussion this week about people born with Down syndrome has been horrible. People are seen as inherently worthless. Weak members of society were objects not of compassion but of derision. More than most, Romans lionized strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience, Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved, and resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Interesting, he uses that word, losers. Loser has become uh, more and more of an object of our political discussion, and it's not to our credit when we call people losers. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved, and resistors were to be ruthlessly handled. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before arrival was paramount. You know, you know, Jesus says to these, the disciples, you know, you know how people misuse authority. And you too, sitting in this room, you know, you, you know. A few of you have had models of how to use authority rightly, but some of you have learned to misuse it from a dad or a mom or a coach or a pastor or a teacher. You, you learn how to misuse, a, you know, you know what happens. Scrambling up. Now, Jesus turns here. He's in the middle of this paragraph, I know. He turns here, and we're going to turn to, let's talk about going down part two. Jesus says in verse 26, not so with you. I wonder, if the disciples were 20 years younger than they are, this conversation might have been different. If, if the disciples were stereotypical 14-year-olds, 
or sometimes eight-year-olds, right? They come home and they say, Dad, Dad, everybody at school is talking about this movie that they're going to go see, and I want to go see it. Can we go watch this movie? No, we're not going to go watch that movie. Dad, Dad, everybody at school uh, has a phone, and I don't have a phone, and I think I should get a phone. Can I get a phone? And Dad says, not so with you. Dad, Dad, why do I have to go to bed so early? Everybody else gets to stay up later than I do. I'm the only kid in my school who has to go to bed early. I should be able to stay up late like everybody. And Dad says, not so with you. And a stereotypical 14-year-old or 8-year-old, I suppose, stereotypical 14-year-old responds, ah, like that, right? Why am I stuck? Were the disciples ever were tempted? Jesus, we're finally going to get some power, and this is what you tell us to do with it? Come on. Come on. Not so with you. Now, let's skip to the end of the paragraph for just a minute. Verse 28, Jesus speaks about his own understanding of what is going to happen to him and why. He's a model for us, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is the key word here. Ransom is a payment to obtain freedom. It's a word that applies to prisoners of war. It's a word that applies to slaves. Jesus is going to offer his life as a ransom for many. And this answers a lingering question that's been at the beginning of, been with us since the beginning of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel appears to Joseph and tells him that Mary, his betrothed wife, is going to have a child, uh, this is what the angel says. Matthew 1.21, look at it now. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Great. How? How's he going to do that? How is this baby who's going to come going to save his people from their sin? And here is the answer. He's going to offer his life as a payment, as a ransom for the sins of many, it says, as a ransom for many. And this many is probably a reference back to Isaiah 53, 12. Look at Isaiah 53, 12, the last part of it. It says, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. Remember, remember what he said about his death? He knew when, he knew where, he knew who, he knew how, and here he says why. To offer his life as a ransom for many. Matthew Turner says this answer is really another question that Matthew raises back in Matthew 16, 26. Jesus asked the question, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Most of us here have had the unfortunate, unhappy experience of getting an unexpected bill. You do your taxes and, oh, these are high, this is higher than I thought. Or the car <laughs> breaks down somehow and, and you get a bill for several hundred dollars or suddenly you discover that your water heater is busted or you need a new roof and, and you didn't realize it before until a tropical storm Ida came through and, ah! And, and I know all of you have sufficient emergency funds to cover all of those things. But you don't want to use your emergency funds, right? I mean, they're for emergencies. You don't have to actually use them. So you get this bill. How am I going to pay, How am I going to pay this bill? Ugh. Here's the bill from God, what you owe because of your sin against him. You owe your life. Do you have an emergency fund for that? 
What can someone give in exchange for his soul? And the answer to that question is, sufficient payment has been made by the Son on the cross for our sin, bearing the wrath of God we deserve. Kevin Bacon uh, was in the movie Footloose, and he talks about when he first showed it to his six-year-old son. Footloose is not a favorite movie of Baptists, but anyway, Kevin Bacon is talking uh, to his son, and his six-year-old son said to him, Dad, you know that thing in, in, in the movie where, where you swing from the rafters of that building? That's so cool. How'd you do that? And Kevin Bacon said, well, that actually wasn't me. That was a, a stuntman. What's a stuntman? Well, a stuntman is someone who dresses like you and does the things you can't do. And his six-year-old thought about it for a minute. And he said, okay. And then he said to his dad, you know, dad, uh, that, that thing in that movie where you spun around on that gym bar and then you landed on your feet. How'd you do that? That was so cool. And Kevin Bacon said, well, that, that was a, a gymnastics double. What's a gymnastics double? Well, a gymnastics double is a guy who dresses in your clothes and does the things that you can't do. And, and Kevin Bacon's six-year-old son said, well, dad, what did you do in this movie? <laughs> and Kevin Bacon said, I got all the glory. Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man who does what we cannot do. He offered his life as sufficient payment for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God. And he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory and he invites you to share in his glory. To turn to him and trust in him and find forgiveness and life and eternal happiness in him. Between now and the consummation of that eternal happiness, though, there is suffering. Remember, that's part of our origin story. It's why we don't use, misuse authority. It's why we come not to lord it over, but to be a servant, but to be a slave. And Jesus is talking about low rung of society. This is the lowest rung you could possibly get, slave, servant, Alistair Roberts says that maybe the emphasis here is not so much on the menial task, but on the fact that servants are commissioned workers. They do work that someone else has assigned them. Isaiah 53 is in the context of a prophecy where, where the prophet is speaking about the servant who will come, God's ultimate servant who will come. And Jesus is God's ultimate servant. And he's come not to use his power for his own benefit, but to serve his father's purposes. We use our authority not to please ourselves, but to fulfill the purpose that God has called us to. Do you see that? James and John did not, and neither did their mother. But there's two men who did, and Jesus met them as he was leaving Jericho with a large crowd. He's heading out of town, there's a large crowd, and along the side of the road are two blind men, probably they're begging, that's what uh, beggars do, uh, blind men would often do, have mercy on us, that's what they would say to everybody, have mercy on us, except they say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David, have mercy on us. They're calling out to Jesus, and the crowd says, shh. You know people who use their authority to uh, lord it over people. And, and this crowd is doing that to these blind men. Lord, shh. Jesus doesn't have time for you. We're talking to Jesus now. You're too little for Jesus to care about. Be quiet. But they're not too little for Jesus. 
This, this account actually makes me think of a parable that Jesus told. I'm not sure that Matthew has this in mind or Luke has this in mind, but I'm thinking, I think about it because of Jerusalem and Jericho. Jesus is on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. Well, Jesus told the story once, you know it, it's one of his most well-known, about a man who is traveling the other way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Jer Jericho, this man was, when he was set upon by robbers and left on the side of the road dead, almost dead. Somebody came along, a priest, he didn't have time, he kept going. Another guy came along, a teacher of the law, a Levite, you'd think he'd really have his stuff together. He leaves the guy on the side of the road too. And then the, the Samaritan comes, the despised Samaritan, and he helps that man who's been left on the side of the road. Well, Jesus is going in the other direction from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he comes upon two men lying on the side of the road, and he helps them. What do you want me to do for you? It's the same question he'd asked the mother. What do you want me to do for you? We want to see. And, and Matthew, using this word compassion, that's so important to how Jesus sees people. He has compassion on him and he heals them. What does Jesus use his power to do? Jesus knows what's going to happen to him. He knows what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And what does he use his power to do? He could have used his power to get out of what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He certainly had that ability. What does Jesus use the power that he has to do? He uses it to give sight to two blind men. Someday he's going to come and use the power that is his to establish his kingdom, to rule and reign forever. But now, in this scene and in this time, Jesus uses the power that he has to, to heal these, the eyes of these blind men. Some of you this morning need a reminder of that as you feel very little. And the, the, the blind men get up and they, they receive their sight and immediately they follow him, which is Matthew's word, they're, disciples, they're, they're joining the discipleship band here. They're following him. Do you see? What do you do with the authority and the influence and the power that you have? Do you know uh, the first people who will be able to tell whether you see or not, or not are the people that are sitting next to you in the chair, in those chairs, people you live with at, at home. They'll, they can see what you do with your authority and power and influence. The next people to know will be uh, your classmates at school. They'll be able to see what you do with your basketball skills during recess, your four square abilities. They'll be able to see what you do with your fashion prowess and how you use your sharp tongue, your wit. They'll, they'll be able to see. Maybe you don't have classmates. Maybe you have coworkers. Foursquare might not be that important at your company. But they'll be able to see if you see. Then it will be your neighbors, members of, of the church. That they will all know what you see. Do you see? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this account uh, from Matthew's pen for us. 
It, it helps us. It teaches us to obey all of the commands that the Lord Jesus gave. Lord, we confess to you that at times we are blind like the disciples and we want to think about the glory and not the cross. We want, um, we, we want to wear the glory without the grace necessary to bear the cross. So we, we confess that to you. Lord, sometimes it, it's, you know this, it's, it's not easy in this world to be unpopular or noted for being out of step. And we don't, we don't like that discomfort. So we confess to you how we have failed in this. We are thankful to you for the compassionate power of the Lord Jesus who reached out to two blind little ones. Some of us need that word of encouragement and comfort today. Help us, Lord, as, as we in the Gospel of Matthew see the Lord Jesus getting closer to Calvary, help us to be faithful in following him. He, you, you said, Jesus, to us to serve and not be served. Grant that we might use our authority, our power, the influence that we have, uh, not to scramble up higher, but to go down and to care for the little ones and fulfill what you have commanded. Help us, help us, we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, amen.